0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.
1: Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 25th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. In this week's show, David Grimm chats with Sarah Crespi about the week's most interesting online news stories. And then, Kimberly Dunham Snary discusses mitochondrial gene therapy as part of our special section on mutation and human health. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of
0: all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the smell of death. And we're not talking about just a general smell of death, but the specific smell of decaying dead people. And this is something scientists want to quantify why, Dave?
2: If you think about cadaver dogs looking for bodies in the aftermath of disasters, we know cadaver dogs home in on something in fact in the aftermath of the recent California forest fires they sent in dogs to look for dead people and these dogs basically their noses had to find that scent among all the other scents that they were smelling the scent of burning wood and the scent of other dead animals and somehow they're able to home in just on this human smell of death so researchers suspect that there is a specific smell associated with human death, they just don't really know what it is.
0: And the method in this study involved putting gross things into jars, which to me kind of seems like the set dressing for a mad scientist movie. How did it actually work, though?
2: These people took some organs and other tissues from six cadavers, and they put them in these jars with screw caps that let a little bit of air in. And what they did was over the course of six months, they took a sample of the aromatic compounds that were being released from these jars. Now, they actually compared that to other jars that were filled with pig, mice, mole, rabbit, turtle, frog, sturgeon or bird remains, so they had a lot of other animals to compare it to. And when they analyzed all these compounds that were coming out of these jars, what they found was that actually pigs and humans were actually very similar. They actually had a lot of the same compounds, which researchers had kind of suspected for a while. Pigs have actually been used as a stand-in for dead people for a variety of scenarios. But it turned out there was actually five compounds that separated the smell of dead pigs from the smell of dead people.
0: What can they do with the information now that they have this? You know, these compounds isolated? How does that help?
2: The hope is twofold. One, that with these compounds in hand, they'll be able to better train these cadaver dogs because they'll have a much more specific scent. To train with. The other hope is to develop machines that could potentially do the same job that dogs could do. If these machines could pick up just on these particular chemicals, then they might be able to find dead people as well.
0: Do they think this jar method is comparable to the methods like those used on body farms where they? you know, bury things out in the open and, and analyze what happens to them over time.
2: That's a great point, And that's actually a point raised in the story. One expert says that we're only dealing with parts of a body here and actually the may actually be a lot more complicated than the researchers think it is. And the other thing is that these are not bodies that were, are actually out in the environment. They're not laying on the ground. And so those things themselves may actually contribute to the chemical cocktail. So there may be other factors that are not being accounted for in this JAR experiment.
0: Next up, we have a story on our not-so-imminent destruction. Apparently, mercury is not going to crash into the Earth, killing our great, 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 you-get-the-picture, grandchildren's children. Dave, why would anyone think that this was going to happen in the first place?
2: When astronomers run simulations of the solar system, in some cases they have found that in some simulations, thanks to the gravity of a variety of the planets in our solar system, that Mercury could one day hit Earth. Or it could jostle the orbits of other planets like Venus or Mars, which themselves would crash into Earth. So Mercury could either be directly or indirectly responsible for our destruction. But the problem with these simulations is we actually don't actually know the exact position of the planets in our solar system. And even a few centimeters difference can actually make the difference between a planet slamming to Earth and not slamming to Earth billions of years from now.
0: Okay, so these researchers, you know, they go they get a supercomputer, obviously, <laughs> ran some right. simulations and found out we won't be getting an up close and personal look at Mercury in 5 billion years. How do they figure that out?
2: Well, they ran 1600 simulations and in each of these simulations the current position of Mercury was slightly different, so they really tried to account for all of the possible places in the solar system Mercury could be. And in none of those simulations did Mercury either directly or indirectly cause the destruction of Earth.
0: What about the research that first showed that this was a possibility? How is this new study different from those earlier ones?
2: There actually was a similar study conducted about six years ago and actually involved more simulations that did show that a planet could hit Earth. But the author behind the current study says that his study better sort of tracks the precise movements of Mercury versus that older study. But there is one thing that both studies agree on. And they agree on this idea that in about 1% of simulations, Mercury hit the Sun. And in a few other instances, it hit Venus. Now, in either case, there was actually no dramatic impact on Earth, save for a very spectacular light show.
0: Lastly, we have a story on measuring intelligence in animals. It seems to me that trying to figure out which is smarter, a chimp, or a parrot would just be impossible. They have wildly different abilities, mostly tailored to the way they live their lives. When we label them as intelligent, we're often saying they can do things that we can do. They're like humans, so they're smart. To make things more complicated, researchers can't even tell whether within these species, that there are smarter chimps and less smart chimps, smarter mice and less smart mice. Why is this so difficult to figure out, Dave?
2: the first thing is it's really hard to give animals tests. You can't sort of sit them down like people and give them an exam like we do for the IQ test. And then there's a lot of confounding factors. For example, animals that are hungrier are going to be more motivated to complete a test versus those that aren't as hungry. So that can skew results. And the final thing is that animals have a lot of specific skills. For example, chimpanzees have been shown to use tools and birds are known to have very good memories, or at least some birds. But what does that say about their overall intelligence? It's been sort of hard to tease that out.
0: In this study we're gonna talk about today, the researchers worked with robins. What kind of
2: tests did they give these birds? They took 20 adult robins and they trained them to carry out Six different tests to measure various skills. They didn't want to just focus on one skill. Some of these tests included the birds learning to flip plastic lids over that would reveal a treat at the bottom, in this case a mealworm. In another they had to distinguish one color from another and in another test they had to distinguish particular symbols from each other. So for example, distinguishing a cross from a square. And what they did was they ran all these birds to these various tests. They also gave them a worm before and after the test to try to make sure that all the birds were sort of equally motivated and, and satiated during the experiments. And what they found was indeed that they saw a lot of variation in the way individual birds performed on these tasks, you know, with some birds performing very poorly and some birds actually performing very well overall.
0: Now, to me, the question in the study kind of seems backwards. Wouldn't it be far more strange if there wasn't variation in the intelligence of an animal species if they were all pretty much identical?
2: Wouldn't it be more Wouldn't that be surprising? weird? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that would be more surprising, you know, but again, we know a lot about what happens in people. We just sort of, we can make these assumptions about whether the same thing happens in other animals, but until, you know, we do tests like this, and these types of IQ tests have been very hard to administer in animals for the reasons, you know, I said earlier, that actually it's not just so much about the result being surprising, it's about even being able to get that result in the first place. One thing that is kind of remarkable about those results is the researchers show that about 40% of the differences they saw between these birds could actually be chalked up into smart disks or general intelligence. It's actually a pretty similar figure to what we see in people, which is about 40% as well.
0: What else is on the site this week, Dave?
2: Sarah, we've got a story about why some galaxies are brighter than others. Also, a story about a new human virus that's been identified in the human blood supply. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got the latest on the controversy over editing the genomes of human embryos. Also a story about why Europe is considering a satellite that would monitor the glow of plants from space. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah.
0: David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. If you could
1: prevent a potentially fatal mitochondrial disease in a baby by using DNA from three parents, would you do it, even if the child ran the risk of medical complications later in life? Clinicians and families may face these questions soon, as the United Kingdom has recently approved a technique called pronuclear transfer which could replace one woman's defective mitochondrial DNA with donor DNA before sperm and egg fuse during fertilization. Kimberly Dunham-Snary discusses important considerations that need to be grappled with before pronuclear transfer becomes the standard of care for preventing mitochondrial disease. I'm Suzanne Bard. Mitochondrial diseases
3: are a large classification of chronic illnesses that can either be present at birth or develop later in life. Each of these conditions is caused by a genetic mutation or a specific change in the genetic material of the mitochondria, which as most people know is the powerhouse of the cell, the part of the cell that generates our energy. And at what point do these mutations actually happen? Well, typically, since we're talking about a mutation that is not what we call de novo, which is a mutation that spontaneously occurs in an individual, these mutations are inherited such that the mother, since your mitochondrial DNA is inherited only from your mother, is already carrying this mutation and it might not be at a level at which she is exhibiting any symptoms of a disease, but these mutations are typically inherited right through from your mother when you have them and it's the level of mutation that is present in you that dictates the severity of the disease in most cases.
1: So what's the prognosis for someone with a mitochondrial disease? Well prognosis for patients
3: tends to vary greatly. And it depends largely on a number of factors, including the type of disease and which organs are involved and to which extent those organs are involved. But the majority of these disorders do cause progressive muscle weakness and it occurs at varying pace, but in most cases can be fatal and can be fatal anytime from infancy to a very young age. But some individuals who have mitochondrial disease do go on to lead a full life, but their condition does progressively get worse as they age.
1: And why does mitochondrial DNA only pass from the mother to the offspring and not the
3: father? Well, the biological reason it only passes from the mother and not from the father is largely because the egg cell, which is from the mother, contains an abundance of mitochondria and all of the energy required to divide, whereas sperm cells do contain large amounts of mitochondria because that's what makes the tail move. And during fertilization, only the headpiece of the sperm enters the egg. The mid piece and the tail break off. So none of dad's mitochondrial DNA or mitochondria actually enter into what will be the developing embryo. So when the two nuclear genomes fuse and an embryo is formed, the only mitochondria that are there is the maternal mitochondria and just through cell division, even if a little bit of the father's mitochondria were to penetrate or bleed into the system, it would be outcompeted simply during replication by the mother's mitochondria. So really, it's more mathematical than anything else. So
1: the United Kingdom has approved a technique called pronuclear transfer as a way to prevent some mitochondrial diseases. How does this technique work? And why are the offspring of this technique also referred to as three-parent babies, Kimberly?
3: Well, normally... During reproduction, sperm meets egg, and two half-genomes will combine or fuse to form a new genetically unique individual. So this embryo, this new individual, will receive their nuclear DNA, half from mom and half from dad, and receive their mitochondrial DNA only from their mother. If the mom, as we previously discussed, is carrying a pathogenic mutation in her mitochondrial DNA, we could circumvent The passing on of that mutation to offspring via this technique called pronuclear transfer. This technique is performed in vitro using a mother's egg and the father's sperm, who I will refer to typically as the patient. So when sperm enters the ovum, but before they fuse, the cell is called a pronucleus. This pronucleus is contained within an egg cell with the mother's mitochondrial DNA, But the pronucleus can be removed and transferred into a donor egg cell from a different female that has had its own nucleus removed. This new cell can then be implanted into the mother for gestation. And the resulting offspring are often called three-parent babies because they contain genetic material from three individuals. They contain their nuclear DNA from mom and dad and the mitochondrial DNA from a donor female.
1: So how would a woman actually know that she has a genetically defective mitochondria in order to even go through this procedure? I mean, most people when they want to have
3: a child just you know, procreate. No, that's very true. Typically family history of an energetic disease or a muscle disease or even a previously diagnosed mitochondrial disease that the prospective parent doesn't necessarily suffer from would direct a woman for testing. However, mitochondrial diseases are historically difficult to diagnose and referral to research centers is often critical, but if experienced physicians are involved, diagnoses are typically made through a combination of clinical observations, laboratory tests, muscle biopsies things like that. Despite these advances, though some cases still don't receive a specific diagnosis, but since mitochondrial diseases are specifically mutations within the mitochondrial genome, which is much smaller than the nuclear genome, it's a much more targeted effort to identify a potential mutation that could be causing any kind of pathology.
1: So the donor's DNA has actually been screened as having no mitochondrial defects, is
3: that right? Ideally, yes, that would be the case that any prospective donor female would go through the rigorous screening required to ensure that the technique weren't just going to remove a pronucleus from a cell that carrying a mutation and implant it into a cell carrying a different mutation, for example.
1: Has this technique actually been attempted in humans yet?
3: No, not to my knowledge. And to clarify what occurred in the United Kingdom this past February, was a legislative decision that involved approving laws to allow for pro-nuclear transfer to occur, as techniques like this had not been previously established as far as the legality of said techniques. But the latest update has been regulatory and that the appropriate authorities are deciding how to license to allow the procedure to occur clinics are apparently going to be able to apply for these licenses as soon as this November. But based on that schedule, if everything stays on track over there, it is possible the first baby could be born within the next 12 to 18 months. Interesting. That's pretty quick.
1: And in your paper, you review rodent studies that bring up some potential health concerns with pronuclear transfer. What are they? What do we have to be aware of when we go into this
3: brave new world? Well, some of the concerns stem from research in a model called the Mouse model, which stands for mitochondrial nuclear exchange mouse. And it's a model I was fortunate to work on while I was finishing my PhD at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and were designed by my PhD mentor, Dr. Scott Ballinger. It's a model very similar to pronuclear transfer being proposed in humans. And we simply swap the nuclei of fertilized embryos into opposing mouse strains. These mice appear healthy, they're fertile but we have noticed that different nuclear mitochondrial DNA combinations resulted in varying susceptibility to multiple pathologies including atherosclerosis, cardiovascular disease, altered lipid profiles and we're looking at endpoints of varying metabolic diseases as well. One of the other studies reviewed generated a hybrid stem cell by fusing a somatic cell which is a non-gamate cell from a mouse strain and fusing that to an enucleated egg of a different mouse or mouse B. And then they grafted these hybrid stem cells into either of the host strains of mice. And in both cases, whether the nuclear DNA matched the host or the mitochondrial DNA matched the host, the mice experienced an immune response that can really be likened to organ rejection. Now, this technique is different than what was used in the minx mice that were mentioned or in proposed pronuclear transfer, but it does raise an important issue regarding mismatched mitochondria with respect to this pronuclear transfer technique.
1: Alright, so for organ donation or bone marrow transplants, matching has gone on for a long time. What are some potential solutions to the concerns that you have over these mouse studies?
3: Well, I think the best way to overcome these and most of the concerns that a number of researchers have put forth regarding techniques like this, if you're going to translate this kind of research into humans, is to ensure that donor egg cells do match the mother, as you mentioned, as closely as possible, genetically speaking. So when we talk about organ donation and blood transfusions, we talk about matching blood type or we talk about matching different immune markers. Well, you can also match mitochondrial DNA. So everyone falls into what's called a haplotype, which is just a set of benign mutations in your mitochondrial DNA that are all inherited together. They vary geographically according to your maternal ancestry and we're able to screen that very easily in people. And I think the best place to start would be to ensure that the donor female and the prospective mother are of the same haplogroup.
1: Kimberly, do you see pronuclear transfer as a viable option for treating mitochondrial diseases in the future, both from
3: a biological standpoint and also an ethical standpoint? Well, I suppose I'm on the fence. From a biological standpoint, the likelihood of altering a person's basal metabolism or changing their susceptibility to multiple diseases is likely and may even happen if mitochondrial DNA backgrounds are matched. However, if you weigh the pros and cons of possibly increasing susceptibility to metabolic or cardiovascular disease later in life compared to a chronic, progressive, and possibly fatal disease, then I suppose pronuclear transfer would be a viable option. Ethically, I think that, well, with any medical intervention involving embryos, genetic manipulation, and the like, there is going to be a sharper divide. And it's times and procedures like this that people are going to be looking to the research community to be educated and objective to present the facts and allow patients to make the decision with their doctor that they feel is best for them. The reception of the news out of the United Kingdom has been mixed and the detractors have voiced their opinions and concerns. But I think that's to be expected with almost any new treatment option, especially one if you're talking about gene manipulation when considering a cure or preventing a debilitating disease that affects people at all stages of life and can be fatal in infancy, our first instinct can be naturally to run with it and do everything we can to eliminate any of these diseases. However, given recent research outcomes and ongoing studies, I think caution is warranted to, at minimum, ensure that any pronuclear transfer-type technique does make an effort to match donor mitochondria and mitochondrial DNA to a patient.
1: Thanks so much for speaking with me, Kimberly. Oh, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Kimberly Dunham Snary and Scott Ballinger address biological and health considerations of mitochondrial gene therapy in this week's science. Check out this article and other special coverage of mutation and human disease at www.sciencemag.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.
0: You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year subscription to Science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org/join. That's AAAS.org/join.